Hi, welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. I'm your host, Edward Russell, senior reporter at Airline Weekly. Today, I'm joined by Seth Miller, the editor and founder of Paxx.Aero, to learn all about his experience onboard JetBlue's inaugural service to London on August 11th. We look at, at the onboard product uh, that JetBlue's offering, uh, as well as you know, talk about whether they're going to have a competitive impact in the market. Uh, you can check us out at airlineweekly.com. A new issue drops every Monday, and we update throughout the week. Thank you and enjoy. Hey, Seth, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ned. How are you? Excellent. Doing well, doing well. Well, we're excited to, to hear today about your, your flight on board the inaugural JetBlue uh, service to London. Uh, you, you took that last week. I did. And, you know, even by JetBlue pomp for a inaugural flight standards, I think the terminal experience pre-flight was pretty ridiculous, uh, mostly in a good way. But it was uh, it was interesting to see sort of in this COVID travel era how much was going on and, you know, Everybody still masks, of course, because you're in an airport, but there was a lot going on just of extra people and extra stuff around. So it's always nice to be, uh, see that level of celebration happening. But obviously, the, the real magic happened uh, in the air because anyone yeah. can throw a party on the ground. Uh, delivering that service in the sky is a whole different uh, experience. Absolutely. And what most people are going to see is, is that experience in the air because, of course, the ground party isn't going to continue after, uh, after day one, I imagine. Uh, what we we don't get a giant British flag every departure? That's disappointing. They had like a thirty foot flag against the wall. It was amazing. Wow! Um, <laughs> and did all their uh, did all of the press shots in front of that. So it was fun. Um, yeah. No. I and I guess so. I I actually went over in economy class on the inaugural uh, and came home in the Mint Studio, which is oh, their nice. version of you know row one on board. It was sort of a extra space version of the Mint sweet business class product. So I got to experience a little bit of both of them, obviously, uh, daytime and nighttime, different experiences for the different cabins. But, you know, I, I think the economy class product, I actually have said to a few people, maybe too much and maybe too good. Too good. I mean, that's <laughs> a ridiculous that's thing to say out loud, right? I mean, <laughs> Right. I think I saw a photo of a, of a giant uh, ice cream sandwich from your flight that looked amazing. But um, beyond that, I mean, what, what, what was you know, what was too good about it? Well, the ice cream sandwich was, in fact, delicious. It wasn't too big. It was like maybe an inch and a half cubed. So it was the perfect amount of ice cream for me to eat and not get an upset stomach. So they offered me extras and it was the only thing I turned down, I think, on board. Clearly, um, you're, clearly you're not my son who can't get enough ice cream. Uh, his life depends on it. But <laughs> I know, I'm no longer two years old. Uh, yes. Uh, but, no, you know, I think the uh, so plenty of leg room uh, as economy class travel goes. JetBlue is known for offering the most leg room in coach. Um, it, I believe they're officially 33 inches of pitch in the regular economy seats. Uh, it is more than everybody else has back there. Could it be more? Sure. Um, it was, you know, I would say enough uh, in that level. Uh, interestingly, because it is an Airbus single aisle plane um, or an Airbus in general also, but I think it has wider seats okay. than any of the Boeing offerings. So yeah. from a sort of personal space, once you have plopped yourself in, down and buckled in, I think you have more space than if you're on a 787 or a 777 going across the pond, which is a, a lot of what um, the competition is running. And some 767s, I think it's probably a little closer just in terms of seat width because they're wider. But uh, it, in that context, I think, you know, from a personal space perspective, it was nice. 
Nice. The, yeah. The food was over the top, good, but also like edging towards the side of this is a 10 o'clock departure to London. There's only six hours between when they close the front door and when we have to reopen it again. How are you supposed to eat dinner, sleep, and eat breakfast? Interesting, because uh, that's been, I know that's been a challenge for a lot of the uh, transatlantic airlines trying to do a quick service because, of course, many travelers want to get on board and sleep for that flight. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, from the Northeast, which is where I've been for many, like 20 years now, obviously. I can't remember the last time. I literally can't remember the last time other than this JetBlue flight that I stayed awake for the meal. I just go to sleep, right? I can eat in the terminal. Um, it's not free slash included in the fare, but uh, I can sleep. And if I have to spend $20 on a mediocre burrito in the terminal, that's probably worth it for getting some sleep. Absolutely. You know, I think uh, same way I value uh, getting a full day once I land on in land in London more than <laughs> the $20 on a mediocre burrito. Right. And so, on the one hand, you know, would it be a better service for a 6 or 7 p.m. departure rather than the 10 p.m. departure? Sure. Um, arguably on those earlier flights, the sleep is even more critical, so it's hard to argue. You know, it's hard to go one way or the other. But right. I, we, they, they were starting the second drink service that they do after dessert after midnight New York time. And to me, that's just too much. That's that's it stretched too long. And they, they, their goal was to be 90 minutes from when they hit 10,000 feet to end of meal service. And I, I like that target. I think, you know, 70 or 80 minutes would be better. Um, and, you know, with fewer people on board, it would go faster with, as they get used to it, I'm sure it will go faster, but it was a round of drinks, the main course, which you order on the on their in-flight entertainment system, you like on the touch screen, you actually tap which options you want, uh, and it puts together your meal because you get to choose from one of three mains and two of three sides. So you get three little plates. Uh, then they come back through with collecting all the empties, then the dessert service, the ice cream sandwich, and then another drink service. That's so five times through the aisle, and it's it's just a lot going on. So delicious. I, I really actually enjoyed the meal. The food was over the top good, but also it just seemed like too much to me going on in the cabin there. So Seth, it sounds like there's a lot of kinks that, that need to be worked out of the service still, though I imagine yeah. you know, as they go, they'll, they'll get some of that and, and it'll smooth out and, and stuff. Yeah, you know, I, obviously I hope so. Um, I think that's gonna need to happen. It, it, you know, and maybe they could do, I don't know, like the final drink service when they're bringing the ice cream around or something. I don't know. That's too much on the cart probably. But like just, I feel like there's maybe one, a way to make it not five trips through the cabin for the meal service. And right, this is one of those things, as you said earlier on, you know, every airline struggles with this. Delta tried to do something similar where they were adding, you know, this is a few years ago now, obviously, but they were adding an extra, I think, ice cream dessert on their overnight services. And it, it, to me, it takes too long. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, th there's right. other things on the flight. You get a normal sort of snooze kit, which is your mask and earplug. Uh, there's also an economy class amenity kit, which oh, has wow. socks, uh, a little pair of ankle socks and um, like moisturizer and lip balm, I think. That's and it comes in, yeah, and it comes in a cute little reusable silicone pouch. I'm still not sure what I'm supposed to use it for, but it's reusable, so I have one. Uh, <laughs> didn't throw it away. But like, 
I would almost argue like the amenity kit for coach because it's this reusable thing actually in some ways looked nicer than the amenity kit in business on the way home, which was wow. just a paper wrap. It had more stuff in it and the business class one. I haven't even finished inventorying it, but uh, the reusable side of this little silicone thing is, is a nice touch. So Interesting. Um, yeah. And then the blanket, the, the blanket in economy class was like a real blanket. Wow, I mean, nice. So, I, right, I mean, you and I, I have mean, flown enough flown... of the legacy carriers that, like, <laughs> that gauzy like polyester. It's not that. It's one of the things that I wanted to bring home and chose not to because I didn't want to get caught. Um. <laughs> so, no, no. I, I remember my grandmother has many blankets she took from her flights uh, in the eighties. It's uh, something <laughs> when she passed, I'm amazed that she walked off. But I hear you. So. You've gone over the economy experience, and it sounds fantastic, you know, barring from the, the long meal service. How did that compare to Mint on the way back? So, obviously, a little bit extra time to spend in Mint uh, because of the westbound traffic uh, and also not needing to sleep the whole time. So, a, you know, a more relaxed sort of environment, if you will, but not feeling rushed to get right to sleep. Um, also, though, a really good product. I think you know, if you look at the competition it's up against, there's sort of a combination of things you have to look at of sort of like the hip factor of maybe a Virgin Atlantic versus the uh, seat options of, I don't know, maybe the United Polaris High J, their new 763s or, or that new Polaris seat. You know, there, there's a lot of these different things that you sort of balance together. And I, I really do think that JetBlue has a nice product that sort of isn't any of those, but you know, it's probably 80% of any one of them if you went and looked at it. And so, you know, you do get, and more in some cases, right? You get a private suite. So it's a flat bed with a little door that closes. Um, Very nice. Nice, right? I mean, it's, it's a low wall. So anybody walking by can still look over and see you. But if right. you're lying down, you, you don't sort of have the distraction of people walking by in the aisle in your direct line of sight. Uh, I think it's 24 seats. It's half the plane. It goes all the way to the exit windows over the wing. Wow, that's, I mean, that's a lot. That I mean, that reminds me of a lot of the United's uh, Hi-J 767s right. or, or the old 757 premium service they have that, that had business class back to the exits, yeah. Back to the exits, right? Row yeah. 9 was glorious. Um, <laughs> we all remember those. Uh, right, so it, it was a ton of premium seating, uh, and I think that's great. They have three flight attendants staffing the 24 seats, which is, I think, plenty for even a full cabin to still get that level of service that they need to deliver. Um, even better bedding than economy class has a real pillow, uh, still a good real blanket. The seat goes fully flat as you would expect. Um, I'm 5'11", 210 ish right now. And I fit in the seat. Okay. Okay. Uh, even, even sleeping on my stomach, um, which put, does weird things with the arms and sort of tries to try to find somewhere to sort of squeeze them into the coffin shaped, uh, right. if you will, vantage solo or not yeah, vantage solo seat there. So it, I, I think it works as a seat. I think the in-flight product, again, the food, top-notch, uh, I think that hit the mark. No lounge access at Heathrow. Yeah, I was going to ask that because that's something I know I know in New York they don't have a lounge in their terminal, at least not yet. But at Heathrow, of course, there's ample and there's plenty of lounges available. So I'm surprised no, no partners there, no lounges. So, you know, you say ample lounges available. Part of the challenge is in our current times, 
what lounges are actually available. Uh, right, right now, only the Lufthansa and uh, Premium Pass, it's not Priority Pass, Premium something, uh, private, uh, sort of independent lounge are open in T2, uh, right? United, Singapore, Aer Lingus, all closed. So, oh, wow. and there's one other, I think, that's also closed. So, you know, you could argue that based on the departure time and a few other things and their other relationship, the Aer Lingus Lounge would be a, a nice option. Um, back in the day, I would have argued Lufthansa, but Lufthansa sold at stake a few years back. Right. So, it's not going to be them. I mean, obviously, also, like, any, it could be any of them because as long as you pay the fee, you get the access. Right. So, one of the real questions, though, I have is, like, a, how much does the lounge matter? And for JetBlue historically and Mint, the answer has been, if it does, it doesn't matter enough that they care, right? Because they launched Mint out of JFK seven years ago and still don't have lounge access at either right. end for domestic flights. Right. But I would argue that internationally, I, I know personally, internationally, I want a lounge more than I generally want a lounge domestically. So I, I wonder if, if the, the travelers are going to be different for, for these international flights. And, and I tend to agree with you. Um, it also this sort of depends on the flight time. Like, with again, with a 10 o'clock departure out of JFK, if they had a lounge at JFK that they could do pre-flight dining in, big game changer, right? That, that puts you back on par with the Polaris lounge, with the flagship lounge that's reopening next two weeks from now, right? I mean, that you've got, you start to, with the Virgin lounge that offers pre-flight dining, and then the Delta passengers use that at JFK as well. Like, so if everybody else is doing it and you're not, are you still as premium? Welcome back, Seth. It's uh, good to be chatting with you about JetBlue's new service to London. Uh, we, we left off talking a bit about the, the lounges and sort of JetBlue being the odd one out when it comes to uh, offering pre-flight dining. You know, what, what do you think with the offering? I mean, we, how do they stack up competitively compared to pretty much everyone else in the market? So if I'm an economy class traveler, which for better or worse, usually I am, uh, I like it. I like the product and I can probably find my way into a lounge some way or another or spend the $20 in the terminal. If I'm a premium passenger and expecting a little bit of that extra, the onboard is great. Um, and we didn't even talk there. You get pajamas if you're in the mint studio, by the way, in row one. So that's an oh, extra, wow. extra bonus. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I think the ground experience comes up short, quite frankly. And, I, and it will depend on the person. I'm not sure how much that matters, but for some people, you know, the, the trip begins four hours prior to departure when I go to the lounge and have a couple bottles of champagne and some snacks and sort of oh, get into the vacation mode. Hey, <laughs> listen, like I, I, try not, I try not to be that shy. Um, you know, it's, it can be, that can be a big part of the trip for some people. Now, right, if, if it's a business trip and that's truly who JetBlue is targeting, maybe it's a little less on the booze, a little more on pre-flight dining that matters more. But still, there, people are going to show up earlier typically for an international flight. If not, for no other reason, you got to check your bags earlier if you have right. them, right? Like little things like that. So I find myself traveling with a kid more these days. That, that alone is a reason to get to the airport early. Yeah. And so, right, so in many ways, I think that because of the because of all the reasons that people will be at the airport a little earlier for these flights, it will matter more. Um, more broadly in the competitive sense, there, there's a lot of questions, right? JetBlue is 138 minus 434 seats a day yeah. into Heathrow right now, and it's going to go down to four days a week next month for a few weeks before coming back. 
another 134 into Gatwick uh, daily at the end of September. Those are tiny numbers compared to five, six, seven a day from everybody else running airplanes that are not always twice as big, but easily can be. Uh, United is probably the smallest capacity-wise coming back because they're using their high J76s, which are only, I want to say like 168 seats or something like that. Yeah, around there. I know United, uh, they're, they've recently talked about how they've sort of shrunk the capacity, focused more on premium just to, to boost the revenues there. But it, it's interesting, like you said, everyone else offers these, especially from New York, multiple daily departures to London, and here's JetBlue, which, of course, is a you know loved hometown airline, but they've got one flight a day, they'll have two once Gatwick starts, It's it, it, it makes me want, yeah. And right, and so next year they'll have more planes, so they can do more of it. Yeah. Next year, hopefully, there will be demand for more service, because borders will have started to reopen, and vaccination rates will increase, etc., so right, hopefully that helps also. And I, I, I don't fault them for not launching into service with five a day to start. But at the same time, even with 24 seats on their planes and, 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 how, you know, that's zone A on a BA plane and there's plenty more seats behind that kind of thing, right? right? Like, and, and there's all of the other flights happening. So how much can JetBlue truly influence the market and you also have to deal with the fact that, like, the slots that you're, they're using at Heathrow right now are temporary. Right. You know, when do those exp- when, when do they expire? Are they just through the winter season or through the spring? So they currently hold service slots through Halloween. That Saturday night is the IATA season switchover at the end of October. Okay. And the I expect that not ever, there, there. I know that there is a new slot waiver plan in place for. Heathrow for the winter season, which starts October 31st, November 1st. Yeah. I don't believe that the slots that will be allocated for that have been assigned yet. And I went back and looked when they were assigned for this round. Uh, it was the week before the season took effect. So there's sort of a risk that JetBlue is selling these tickets to go to Heathrow and they might have to switch times or not have the slots available. I expect at least for the winter season, they will have slots available because if they if they thought they had to give them back i'm sure they wouldn't be selling seats though you know, yeah well who knows yeah. maybe they would <laughs> yes and no if you if they can they are, the gatwick slots were uh real so to speak they can keep those so uh and given what the loads are right now they could probably just move everybody over to gatwick and apologize and be done with it or refund right. them right so they, they have an option and they probably could get a second day i think they have a, actually access to a second daily at gatwick if they needed it so They can build up that way, Uh, you know, but as they start looking at, you know, more service becomes an interesting question of do you sort of double or triple down on London and try to go to five daily and be a commuter service like the BA shuttles or the combined BAAA shuttle, or do you start looking into other markets? And I think during the press conference on the London side of things, uh, Robin Hayes suggested that Glasgow and Manchester would be additional destinations for next summer. If you add in the Boston to London service as well, uh, you very quickly used up all your planes because they're only going to, I think, have five by then. Right. I mean, and that's some that's some quick growth, some rapid, very rapid growth. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, well, it's interesting. You know, their strategy has always been to expand to more markets. And they've, they've had these maps of multiple dots with, you know, the range from New York and Boston. But it is a question, like you said, like how much competitive influence could they have in New York, London with one or two daily flights? So, yeah, it, and, uh, yeah. 
and certainly, you know, fares have come down or they're arguing that fares are lower. I, I got to say, looking at one-way fares, I am not seeing other airlines necessarily matching. Uh, some of the round-trip stuff, maybe. Um, right. That, and that's actually another interesting aside with the JetBlue's new service. They are doing it. This is the first market where they are pricing round trip versus one ways differently. Oh, interesting. I wonder why they're doing that. I guess maybe they see some uh, other market for the one way. Yeah. (laughs) That is the easy answer for sure. Yeah. It goes to the bottom line. Yeah. But uh, it it does create some interesting circumstances in terms of comparing some of the numbers. But, you know, I, I, I do, I like the product. I think it's, you know, like most JetBlue service in the sky, I think it's really nice. I also worry a little bit for them of, you know, I don't think that they're going to shift what the market does more broadly, just because there is more competition and more uh, capacity competing against them than there was in the JFK transcons when they yeah, was going to say they, they, yeah, they shifted the transcon market when they came in there. Uh, but it does, yeah, like you said, it doesn't sound like uh, they're going to have that. It, it doesn't sound like they're going to have that same impact in the transatlantic market now that they're going in. It's uh, yeah, very different. Yeah, there will be some impact, but even when I, I wanted to say when Mint started, it was sort of they were running four a day, maybe JFK LA, something in that range, and the other airlines were running six to seven. So um, now they're running one or two against six to seven. And it's more airlines that they're competing against and it's bigger planes that they're competing against. So, you know, if the other airlines want to price match them until JetBlue is sold out and then the other airlines will still have plenty of capacity for sort of higher fare seats is what I worry about for JetBlue. Um, I'm obviously not that worried for a corporation, but. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. And the other airlines, of course, have their longstanding contracts in Europe, which is a completely new market uh, corporate contracts in Europe is completely new market for JetBlue. You know, uh, there's a lot of different dynamics here, though. I know they're not targeting corporates necessarily as much as sort of the small businesses and stuff, but that's another, yeah, that's, that's another yeah. <laughs> topic it, completely. Yeah. It's, well, it's all part of how do they make money in the market, right? I think Boston, right. they have more, they have more managed customers in Boston than they do in New York. Um, so maybe that will help when Boston comes back or, or and comes online with the service theoretically next spring. Um, but yeah, they, right. They they've always sort of started by targeting unmanaged business travelers, not big corporate contracts, and basically offering a fare that's low enough that it sort of looks like what the managed contract fare would be, even though the number looks so different because of back end rebates on those contracts. Definitely. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how the service develops, and and like you said, you know, whether they they unveil new service to what you said Glasgow and Manchester for next summer. That's uh. You know, it's it's going to be a lot of people are going to be watching it closely. That's for sure. I know you and I both will. Yeah, I mean, and also the question is, are those really the business markets to go after versus like a Paris or Amsterdam? Oh, absolutely. The uh, you know, I know Ship Skipple has its own slot constraints, and I believe Paris does as well. Though it yeah, feels like they do. Yeah, so there's a whole whole new. You know, set of issues yeah. that they need to work through to get into you know, Skipple or, or Charles yeah. de Gaulle and stuff. So maybe Ed, uh, Glasgow and Manchester are the markets of least least resistance if, uh, to expand. Yeah. Definitely, sure. definitely easier. <laughs> definitely. Well, Seth, thank you so much for joining us today on the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Really appreciate uh, you coming on and uh, yeah, telling us about your trip to London on JetBlue. Always a pleasure. Take care. 
Great. Thanks, Seth. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Should you have comments or questions, drop editor Madhu Unikrishnan a note at mu at skiff.com. Of course, check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week. <laughs>